The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The teacher part in me can't help but remind you where we stopped last week, and that was the sixth trumpet. And so I'm going to pick up here in Revelation 10 and hang with me because I'm going to read Revelation 10.1 through 11.15. Grace upon my mouth, Lord, as I try to read all this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and calling out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the scroll and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to the very heart of the book of Revelation, chapters 10 and 11. I wonder if you ever feel like the plan and purposes of God are failing. Like, when you look around this world, when you you click through the news, watch the news... Are you ever left asking, God, are you even doing anything through your church? And is it having any effect on the world? I felt those questions pounding in my heart, particularly when we reached the end of Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. Those chapters gave us a vision of what God is doing right now. All throughout the last days of the church age, from Christ's resurrection until his return, we got a vision of of seven trumpets that showed us God is active right now. They showed us specifically that God is active answering our prayers. Answering our prayers by sovereignly using all of the evil of this world. to, to He's using the evil of this world as trumpet blasts of warning to the world. If you remember, the first four trumpets warned the world, they served to warn the world of all the emptiness of their idolatry and immorality. But I have to ask, are those trumpets even working? Because people aren't repenting. People aren't repenting because trumpets five and six, if you remember, they showed us that Satan and his hordes actively work to deceive the world and keep them clinging to their idolatry and immorality. Satan and his hordes actively work to deceive the world and, and respond so that they will respond to God's warnings with more rebellion, not with repentance. And I don't know if you remember, but at the end of chapter nine, it looked like Satan is successful. Look at the very end of chapter nine. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hand, immorality, nor of worshiping demons and idols, idolatry. They didn't repent. This is why the final three trumpets are also called three woes. Because at least as the first two of these are blown, does it not look like Satan is conquering and this world is his kingdom? Shades, right here at the end of chapter 9, does it not feel like the plan and purposes of God are failing? Are we not left asking, God, are you even doing anything through your church and is it having any effect on the world? Those are the questions that I think are beating in our hearts and Revelation answers them with its own heartbeat. Shades, 
This is the heart of Revelation, not just because it's right at the middle, chapters 10 and 11. No, no, this is, is the heart of Revelation. Revelation beats with the, the heart of Revelation beats with what God is doing through his church and how that is affecting the world. And this whole book comes screeching to a halt so that we might see it. Let's see it together. Let's see the heartbeat of Revelation so that our hearts might beat in rhythm with it. Let's see what God is doing and how that is affecting the world. See it with me. Revelation 10, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. This is not what we expect right here. We're expecting the third and final woe, or in other words, we're expecting to get trumpet number seven. But the book of Revelation screeches to a halt. For nearly two chapters, we get an interlude. If you remember... The exact same thing happened during our first series of seven. The seven seals, do you remember? We got seal one, two, three, four, five, six. Interlude. Seal six made us feel like Christ was about to return. Final judgment was about to take place, but then it all got delayed. As if to say, final judgment is not here yet. And now we feel the same thing again. As we got trumpet one, two, three, four, five, six interlude trumpet seven final judgment gets delayed again as if to tell us one more time final judgment isn't here yet yes you just saw in verse not in chapter nine and verse 20 yes you just saw at the end of trumpet six that the world was not repenting but there's time to repent yet final judgment's not here yet there's still time to repent but i'm left asking what does that matter What does that matter? Because the trumpets have shown us that despite all God is doing to war in the world, they're only responding in rebellion. Unless, unless we haven't seen all that God is doing through the trumpets. Do you remember last week or two weeks ago? We we saw that God's trumpet blast, yes, they warn the world, but that's not all they do. They warn the world, but they also wake the church. They they wake us when we have gone astray and embraced idolatry and immorality. They, They wake us, and when the church, when true Christians are awakened to the fact they've been embracing idols and immorality, they don't respond in rebellion. They respond in repentance. Repentance that we saw leads to worship. Worship that serves as a witness to the world. And I wonder, could that be what this interlude is about? I mean, the interlude back in the seals between seal six and seal seven, that interlude, if you remember, was about what God is doing for his church, sealing us so that we might conquer. Could it be that the interlude between trumpets six and seven are showing us what God is doing through his church and could that have an effect on the world perhaps perhaps that's what this mighty angel is doing here in revelation 10 perhaps he is here to help us see what god is doing through his church and how that is affecting the world
Look at it again with me. Chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, face shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He's got a surf and turf stance going on right here. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. This, this mighty angel right here, the imagery used to describe him, it kind of reminds us of God. Does it not? There's a rainbow over his head, a rainbow like we saw around God's throne in chapter 4. Verse 5 will tell us that his hands stretch all the way up to the heavens, even while he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. All of that is symbolism of sovereignty. Because when you get to verse 6, it's going to say really explicitly that our God is the one who created heaven, land, and sea. And all that is in them. This angel somehow reminds us of God. But not just God, he also reminds us of Christ. His face is shining like the sun. His voice sounds like a lion. That's all imagery from chapters 1 and 5 with visions of Christ. And I think, I think all this imagery is meant to tell us that the source of this angel's message, the scroll that he brings, I think it's all meant to tell us the source of this scroll. Have we seen such a scroll in Revelation, a scroll that passed from the hand of God on his throne to the hand of the Lamb who is Christ? Perhaps a scroll sealed with seven seals that a mighty angel, like the one here, had to call out to all of creation to see if anyone could open the scroll. Shades, do you remember this scroll from chapter 5? Have you forgotten about this scroll? While we've wandered into all the details of Jesus breaking the seals on this scroll and the trumpet sounding after it, all of it has been preparing us to open and see the contents of this scroll. Jesus broke its seals so that its contents might finally be revealed. Is this not exactly what we find in the mighty angel's hand? Verse 2, he had a little scroll open, not sealed anymore, open in his hand. Shades, at the heart of this big book that we call Revelation, we find a little book, a little scroll that is Revelation's heart. Like, like the little organ, compared with the rest of my body, the little organ of my heart pumps blood to the rest of my body. I think, I believe, this little scroll sets the pulse for the rest of Revelation. This is Revelation's heartbeat. Everything that's come before has been preparing us for this. All you got to do is go back to the very first verse of the book and you can see that. In Revelation, in 1.1, we are told that a revelation is coming our way. It comes from God on the throne, given to Christ the Lamb. It's going to come from Christ through an angel to his servant John for the church. That's what we've got. A revelation from God to Jesus, to this angel, and I bet we're about to see it be given to John. And John's going to give it to us, we've arrived at the heart of Revelation, this scroll that we called the scroll of the conquering kingdom. Remember it? John wept to, to see this scroll open so it could be read. All of heaven 
saying the worthiness of the Lamb because they wanted to see this scroll open because it reveals how God's people will conquer and how His kingdom will come. Shades, the heart of the revelation beats with what God is doing through His church, how we will conquer. It beats with how it's going to affect the world, how His kingdom will come. I want to see if my heart beats in time with the heart of revelation. Don't you? I'm glad that the scroll is here and that it's open. But I'm also worried. I'm worried because at the end of verse 3, seven thunders sounded. Did you see that? And that makes me think that we've got another cycle of sevens coming. We've had seven seals and seven trumpets, so this must be seven thunders. Another delay before we get to read the scroll. But in verse 4, a voice from heaven speaks good news. Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. We don't need to see those judgments. We know the result. There's not going to be any repentance, just more rebellion. We need to see what's in the scroll. No more delay. This mighty angel declares there's going to be no more delay. By the time trumpet seven sounds, we will see the mystery revealed of how God's kingdom will come. I bet we see it by reading this scroll. But, verses 8 and 9 tell us, slow your roll. The scroll is not something that you're going to read, John. It's actually something you're going to eat. Look at verse 9. The angel gives John the scroll and says, Take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, it made my stomach bitter. You see the chiastic structure there? Bitter, sweet, sweet, bitter, emphasizing what's in the middle. Emphasizing that, yes, there's bitterness to this scroll, but it is ultimately sweet. It's going on right here. If you know your Old Testament, this gives you flashbacks of the prophet Ezekiel. He was given a similar scroll and told to do the same thing, to eat it. Back in that vision, it was as if God was saying, Ezekiel, my word is not just something you read about, it's something that you actually live out. And Ezekiel eats the scroll, and after he eats the scroll, his entire life is lived to communicate its message. For the rest of the book, the scroll shapes Ezekiel's words and it shapes Ezekiel's deeds because the scroll is not just something that he reads, it's something that he eats. He takes the word of God into him so that it shapes everything coming out of him. And that's what's happening right here with John. John is being pulled into the vision. No longer just an observer. Now he's a participant. John, this scroll is not something just for you to read. It's something for you to eat. God's word, the gospel, this scroll is meant to get into you and shape everything coming out of you, all your words and deeds. And not just for your sake, John, but for the sake of the world. Look at verse 11. Is that not what it says? And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God is doing something right now through John, through his church, and it is going to have an effect on the world, on many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. 
God is revealing how his people will conquer and how his kingdom will come. Here come, shades, here come the contents of the scroll. John has eaten it, now he speaks it. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, are the contents of the scroll. Revealing what God is doing through his church. And how it affects the world. And it is unlike anything we expect. Because it is bitter. But trust me, it is ultimately sweet. Let's read. No, let's eat the contents of the scroll. Eat with me. Chapter 11, verse 1. And I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This is sweet. This is more Ezekiel imagery. Near the end of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet has a a vision of the temple rebuilt and restored, and he's told to take measurements of it. The New Testament authors pick up that imagery and they apply it to the church. They say that the rebuilt temple, the new temple where God dwells, is the church. Now just read the end of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that Christians are like individual stones being joined together into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. And I believe that Revelation is using this temple imagery in the same way right here. It's a symbol. Some people think this is a literal rebuilt rebuilt temple. I don't think apocalyptic literature or the symbolism we've seen thus far has trained us to read this that way. I don't think the rest of the New Testament trains us to read that this way. I think this is a symbol of the church. And John is told to measure or mark off the inner area of the temple. Now, In the physical temple, there was an inner area, and that was the place of worship in the presence of God. So, this is a picture of worshipers. Isn't it interesting? He's told to measure off the worshipers. This is a picture of worshipers being measured, marked off. The church being measured, marked off, protected in the presence of God. I believe that this is a picture of them being protected because verse, the next verse is going to tell us that the unmeasured area is unprotected. Look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city. That's another image that Revelation is going to use to refer to the people of God. Revelation very quickly for us is going to become a tale of two cities. The holy city and the great city. The holy city is the people of God, the new Jerusalem. The great city are the kingdoms of this world who oppose God. So the temple, the outer temple, they will tra- the nations will be given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is bitter. If the temple and the holy city are symbols for the church then what does it mean for them to be trampled by the nations? Does it not mean what we've already seen all throughout this book, Shades? That in this world, among the nations, the church will face persecution, suffer, 
and even die, but none of that can kill their true life with Christ. That's protected. I think, right here at the beginning of this interlude, I think we're being reminded of what we saw during the first interlude, back in chapter 7. Remember back in chapter 7 in that interlude, we saw God place a seal of protection on his people? Not physical protection. Remember, they went on to be martyred. He placed a seal, not of physical protection, but spiritual. He has sealed his people with his Holy Spirit to empower us to cling to Christ, even if it costs us our life. We can still cling to Christ because we know that not even death itself can separate us from the love of Jesus. It can only, death can only transport us into his presence. Shades, God's temple, the church, you, in this world, you will have tribulation. The temple, you will have tribulation. The temple courts are going to get trampled. But Jesus says, take heart. He's overcome the world. Your eternal life in his presence is protected. We're being shown these things so that in this world we may have peace no matter what we face. We know we are ultimately protected. Church, this is meant to empower us all throughout the church age, no matter what we face. The church in every age. Spiritually protected, that is meant to empower us no matter what persecution we face all throughout the church age from the time of Christ's resurrection until his return, all 42 months of it. Obviously, I don't think that's a literal 42 months. It is at this point in the book that people love to start doing, so there are people who love to start doing a lot of very literal math. 42 months is three and a half years. They love to start adding that together. So we get seven years, you get all sorts of fun things about like seven years of tribulation and mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib, all of those kinds of things. Obviously, I, I, I don't want to pay any disrespect. There are people that are way more brilliant than I. That, 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 that I just called myself brilliant. I didn't mean to do that. There are people who are brilliant <laughs> who, who definitely fall on, on, into those circles and camps. But obviously, you know by now that I think... The, that the numbers throughout Revelation are symbolic. I think the same thing about these 42 months. I think that they are symbolic for the church age. In fact, we're about to get several numbers coming at us that I believe are all symbolic of the same thing. The church age. That time period from Jesus' resurrection until his return, it's going to be called 42 months, 1,260 days. It's going to be called three and a half days. It's going to be called a time, times, and half a time. All of those come out to communicate something that has to do with three and a half. A broken seven. In other words, not a complete time, a, a limited time. 42 months or 1,260 days is three and a half years on a lunar calendar. Three and a half days, it's rather obvious how that signals three and a half. A time, and times, and half a time, it's three and a half. A broken seven, a limited time. All of this numerology comes out of the book of Daniel, where it is consistently used to refer to a limited time of persecution for God's people. We'll get more into the details of this next week, but I think 
Revelation 12 and 13, where we're headed, I think they are going to clearly show that Revelation uses all of these numbers to refer to the church age. Next week in chapter 12, I think we are going to see a very clear vision of the church. You can go ahead and read ahead if you want to. In chapter 12, I think we're going to see a clear vision of the church being spiritually protected and physically persecuted from the time of Christ's first coming until his second. And that time period is going to be interchangeably called in those chapters 1260 days, time, times, and half a time, 42 months. So, at the beginning of Revelation 11, God wants us to know that throughout the church age, for a limited time, He's sovereign over our suffering and he has determined its end. The limited time of the church age, we will face temporary persecution, but we have eternal protection. That sweet and bitter knowledge is meant to empower us as we face our sweet and bitter task. That's what we see next in verses 3 to 13. Get it with me. God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Two witnesses in sackcloth. That's the garb of repentance. They prophesy, they proclaim, they preach, they witness for 1,260 days, or in other words, throughout the entirety of the church age. Who can these witnesses symbolically represent other than the church? Those who've repented. We don't respond to the trumpets in rebellion. We respond in repentance. And now we live to worship Christ like the temple vision just showed us. And their worship now serves as a witness to the world. That's our task throughout the entirety of the church age. The church bears witness like the prophets, proclaiming the word of God, calling the world to repent and turn to Christ. And just in case there's any doubt that the identity of these two witnesses is the church, verse 3 tells us explicitly, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. It's clear now, right? That imagery, we've actually seen it before. We saw it back in Revelation chapter 1. But that imagery comes out of Zechariah chapter 4. Stay with me, Shades. This is beautiful. That imagery comes out of Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, we see a vision of a lampstand. And it's flanked by two olive trees that are constantly supplying it with oil to empower its light. Got the picture? What we're told... Back there in Zechariah 4 is that the lampstand is a symbol for the people of God. Have we not seen Revelation already use it that way? The lampstand is a symbol for the people of God. And God is going to work through two olive tree servants. One is the rightful king, Zerubbabel. It's just fun to say. And one is the high priest, Joshua. Two servants kingly and a priestly. He's going to work through them to provide the power of his Holy Spirit, the oil, so that the people of God may shine a light on his power by accomplishing their mission. In Zechariah 4, their mission is to rebuild the temple. Shades. See the beauty of this. We, the church, 
are the lampstands. Was that not the first symbol Revelation ever used of the church? Seven churches were seven lampstands. Interestingly, if you remember chapters 2 and 3, only two of those churches were found faithful. And here we have two lampstands. The faithful church. The faithful church that Revelation 1.5 calls a kingdom of priests. Aren't those our two olive trees? A kingly one and a priestly one. And are we not a kingdom of priests that God empowers by the oil of His Holy Spirit to accomplish His mission, the building of His new temple? The church made up of people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. Shades. This is an image of our sweet task until the day that Jesus comes. We bear witness with our words shining forth the light of the gospel from the lampstand of the church. Is that not what these witnesses do? But in verses 5 and 10, we see that this task is not just sweet. It's bitter too. Verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We've seen fire pour from mouths before. If you remember it, back in chapter 9, that was an image for demonic deception. Demonic locusts and horses, fire coming out their mouth. It's an image for demonic deception that leads to death. But, but I've said this is the church bearing witness to the gospel, and the gospel is not deception that leads to death. It's truth leading to life. Why does the gospel coming out of the mouth of the church fall like fire on those who oppose them? I think Paul explains it best in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says this of the church, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, being per- who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, Paul says that when Christians proclaim the gospel, it lands on different people differently. To those being saved, it's, it's like the sweet smelling fragrance of life. To those who are perishing, it is like the bitter smell of death. The gospel falls like fire on those who reject Christ and His church because the gospel declares that apart from Christ and His church, there's nothing but death. We don't want that for the world. That's why we proclaim the gospel to them. Because we want them to smell its sweetness. That's why we proclaim the gospel to the world. That's why we pray for the world. Because we want them to come to repentance. I think that's what's being pictured in verse 6. In verse 6 where we're told the witnesses have the power to stop up the rain, to turn water to blood, and strike the earth with all sorts of plagues as as we desire. That's, That's Elijah and Moses like power. Both of which used their power to the, both of which their miracles, their power, all of that was aimed at getting people to repent. And weren't trumpets one through four, like we saw a few weeks ago, weren't trumpets one through four answers to our prayers that look just like these plagues? 
And we can pray as often as we desire. God, wake them up. Do what it takes. Whatever it takes, wake them up. I think that's what's being pictured here. We preach and we pray. We preach and we pray. We proclaim the gospel even when it falls like fire. Shades, this is one of the ways you can know whether or not you're preaching the gospel. Some people think that when you preach the gospel, it should always be met with acceptance. If that's what you're preaching, you're not preaching the gospel. You you may be preaching a prosperity gospel, you may be preaching a health-wealth gospel, you may be preaching something that the world already wants without wanting Jesus, but you're not preaching the gospel of Christ crucified. Some people think that when you preach the gospel, all you should experience is rejection. Isn't that what we're seeing right here? I don't think that's it at all. I'll explain it in just a minute. But those people that think when you preach the gospel, all you should experience is rejection, we call those people jerks. The Bible consistently shows us that there are some to whom the preaching of the gospel smells like life and some it smells like death. There are those to whom it is sweet and those to whom it is bitter. And there are those we see right here upon whom it falls like fire. We preach and we pray. We preach and we pray. And we suffer bitter persecution. So what are we to do? Give up? Or could it be that God is not just using our preaching and our praying to witness to the world, but could he actually be using our persecution too? Could God be using our words and our wounds? Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people from the tribes, nations, languages will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. These two bear witness until the sovereign God says they're finished and they're not killed a moment before, invincible, until it is their time. Then we see that they're killed by a satanically empowered beast. It comes from the abyss. It's satanically empowered. We'll learn more about this beast in the coming weeks, but right now, just know that the Bible commonly uses beasts as images for world powers that oppose and oppress God's people. So the beastly powers of this world kill the witnesses, and through them it looks like Satan has conquered and the world is now his kingdom. For the world dishonors these witnesses by refusing them burial, one of the greatest insults in the first century world. The world celebrates their death like it's stinking Christmas, exchanging Gifts, this looks like permanent defeat. This is so bitter. But verse 11 turns things sweet. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up 
into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Their death is reversed by resurrection. The bitter has become sweet. Being killed has turned out to be conquering. The the gospel word of these witnesses has been vindicated as true. The gospel that declares that through his death and resurrection, Jesus will make all things new, reverse the curse of sin and death, bring about a resurrection and new creation. Is that not what we see right here? These two witnesses, the people of God, resurrected. We get that from the Ezekiel 37 language. They stood on their feet. Resurrection. And they stood on their feet because God breathed into them a breath, a breath of life. That's creation language from Genesis 2 because this is an image of new creation. This is the promise of the gospel coming true. And every enemy eye sees it. And verse 13 declares that every knee bows to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what I just described to you, Many scholars think that is precisely what this vision, or we could even call it a parable almost. Many scholars think that's what this parable of the church is about. That this story symbolically shows that the church will bear witness and they may constantly look defeated and they may ultimately look like they are conquered by the powers of this world, but Christ will come, resurrect, vindicate his people, make all things new, and even those who have rejected him will bow in recognition to who he is. To all of that, I say yes and amen. I believe that that is true. And maybe that is part of what this vision parable is about, but I don't think that's what it's ultimately or even primarily about. I don't think this is ultimately about what happens at the end of the church age. I think it's about what happens all throughout it. I think this is the church's story in every age. I think this is your story. I think that it's mine. This is the story of how the church conquers right now by faithfully clinging to Christ even if it costs us our very life. This is the story of how we bear witness with our words and our wounds. This is the story of how God uses that to wake the world. This is the story of what God is doing through his church and how it affects the world. I believe that for several reasons, Shades. I believe that because Revelation 13 is going to say that the beasts of this world do not just make war, exact same phrase, do not just make war on God's people at the end of time, but throughout the entirety of the church age. 
I believe it because these witnesses lie dead for three and a half days. That's another way of saying Christians will be dying for their faith throughout the entirety of the church age. I think that it's called days here instead of years to emphasize that once we have experienced the end of our suffering, our suffering will seem like it had just been a matter of days, no matter how long we had been here. It will feel like light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that we are now to experience. Christians are being killed all throughout the church age. That's also why the text right here in verse 9 says that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language witness their deaths. Because throughout the church age, believers are going to be dying for their faith all over the world. That's why the place they die is called the great city. The great city, I told you earlier, is a term in Revelation that it will refer to Rome, but it's bigger than Rome. It will refer to every civilization like it. The great city is symbolic for the world that rejects Christ and his people. That's why we're told right here that it's like Sodom. Sodom that, who, who clung to their immorality and pressured the people of God to participate. We're told it's like Egypt who, who clung to their idolatry and persecuted the people of God. The great city is the world that crucified Christ and likewise rejects, persecutes, and even kills those who follow him. But do you see what happens when they do? When the world persecutes and even kills Christians, do you see what happens when they do? Do you see what happens when Christians' words match their wounds? When our words declare Christ loved you so much that he suffered and died, and our wounds demonstrate a love for them, the world that is willing to suffer and die, do you see what happens? God works through the faithful witness of his church to open the eyes of people to see the worth of Christ. I think that's what's happening in verse 13. I don't think verse 13 is ultimately a picture of final judgment when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't think it's ultimately a picture of final judgment because only a tenth of the city is judged. And every single time Every single time in Revelation that we have seen judgment talked about in terms of fractions, it has been to emphasize final judgment's not here yet. There's still time to repent. And in verse 13, I think people do repent. They're terrified, gripped by the fear of the Lord because they've seen him for who he is in his holiness and themselves for who they are in their sinfulness. And they repent and give glory to God. We find that pattern all throughout Scripture, when people first see a revelation of God, they freak out until he says, fear not. And they repent and give glory to God. We don't just see this throughout Scripture. We see it as a pattern in Revelation. This is Revelation's way of describing genuine repentance. Don't believe me? I'll give you two references. Go home and look up Revelation 14 and verse 7. There people are called to respond to the gospel. You know what they're told to do? Fear God and give Him glory. Or look at Revelation 16 and verse 9. There, people are unrepentant and rejecting the gospel. And it's described like this. They did not repent and give God glory. The people in Revelation 13 are repenting and giving glory to God. Why? 
because God has opened their eyes to see Jesus through a church that looks like Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see how this parable of the church purposefully mirrors the life of Christ? There's loving proclamation of the sweet news of salvation, but it's only heard as bitter judgment, so people reject the message. They kill the messenger, but three days later, well, in our case, three and a half days later, as if to say we're right behind Jesus, following in His footsteps, there's a resurrection and an ascension, victory and vindication. And when the world sees that we are not defeated by death, what Revelation 20 will actually call the first resurrection, when that sees that we are not defeated by death, many believe. Do you see how our story mirrors the story of Christ? How the church has their eyes open to who Jesus is through a church that looks like Jesus. A church that doesn't just read the gospel, but eats the gospel so that it gets inside them and shapes everything that comes out of them, their words and their wounds. Do we eat the gospel shades? We, we are at the point that this is the point in Revelation where, like the Apostle John, we are being pulled into the vision. Like, no longer, no longer may we be observers of what is happening here. We're being called to be participants. Because this scroll is not something for us to merely read. It's something for us to eat. The gospel is meant to get into us and shape everything coming out of us. We're to live our lives to communicate this gospel to every people and tribe and nation and tongue through our words and also through our wounds. Through our words and our wounds, God is showing the world the worth of his son and saving all who will come. Shades, this is what God is doing through his church. No matter how weak the church appears, no matter how powerless the church appears, it's precisely in our weakness and our powerlessness that he puts his power on full display. It is precisely through crosses that he conquers. That, that's what he did with Christ. And that's what he does through his church. Christ conquered through the cross as the lamb who was slain. And we conquer by taking up our cross and following after him as a testimony of his worth to the world. Revelation 12 and verse 6 is going to say it best. It declares that the church, it says, they have conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Our words, the word of our testimony. And our wounds, they love not their lives unto death. It's the means of conquering our words and our wounds show Christ's worth to the world. That's what God is doing through his church. That is how we conquer. Shades, we don't conquer like the world. We don't conquer by accumulating worldly power. We conquer by displaying the power of God through clinging to Christ even when the powers of this world crush us. We don't conquer like the world. We don't conquer by, by winning the war of hateful words on social media. We conquer by sharing words of love even when we're hated. We don't conquer by metaphorically or literally killing our enemies, but by dying for them. 
This is how we conquer by using our words and our wounds to show the worth of Christ to the world. This is what God is doing through his church in shades. It is affecting the world. It is. Even if you don't see it right now. Did, did Christ's cross look like success in the midst of his crucifixion? Yet look at its effects in the world. Has any Christian martyr looked like a success in the midst of their death? Yet as Tertullian said in the second century, you can't exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Shades in the midst. It's in the midst. This is Romans 8, right? We all love to talk about how we're more than conquerors, but we don't like to read the verses that come right before that that say it's in the midst of us being slaughtered like sheep that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because we don't have physical protection, but spiritual protection. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in the midst of taking up your cross and following after Christ that you conquer and show the world his worth. Shades, it may feel like foolishness in the midst of it. It may look like weakness. But the gospel is the wisdom of God and the power of God and he is using it through your words and your wounds to affect the world. Your witness shines forth the worth of Christ and this is how he brings the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, this is how he brings the nations into his kingdom and one day shades, you're going to see it. You may not see it now, but one day you're going to see it because one day the seventh trumpet will sound and Christ's kingdom will come and we will sing alongside of everyone who came into that kingdom because of our witness. We will finally see how each other's, how, we'll, we'll see how each of our little scrolls that we ate was a part of a bigger story taking shape, a story that has forever affected the world. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the seventh trumpet. We expect the seventh trumpet to be the third and final woe. But you can search the rest of Revelation. You will not find John saying, and the third and final woe has passed because woe has been turned into worship. This is how Christ's kingdoms, this is how Christ's kingdom comes. When the witness of the church is done, Christ will return and all woes will be replaced with worship. For Satan has not conquered and this world is not his kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever for he has conquered. Eat this scroll, shades. Eat it. There's nothing sweeter. Eat this gospel. Take it into you until it shapes everything coming out of you. Bear witness to its worth with your words and with your wounds. Shades, this is what God is doing through his church and it is affecting the world. This is the heart of Revelation. Does your heart beat in rhythm with it?
shades. Let's not just read this scroll. Let's 